Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, tennis fans, to kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one, Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. French Open season, which gets Matt's V-Lander excited, and of course, our show features the three-time French Open, seven-time singles major champion, and one-time Wimbledon doubles champion and International Tennis Hall of Famer, Mats Vlander. Johnny Levine is on international assignment as we speak, so he won't be joining us this week, but you will be hearing from Murphy Jensen. We were able to catch up with Murphy. It is the 30-year anniversary of he and Luke winning their one and only major championship at the 1993 French Open Championship. But let's just start right there, Mats. Let's give Murphy his due, because how much do you feel that that one major championship changed the legacy of the Jensen brothers forever. Well, Andy, great to be with you again. And uh, you are right. Let's just point that out, that this is the most excited that I am throughout the whole year. I love the French Open, not because I won there three times, but of course that never hurts. But just (laughs) the lead up season on clay, we have three ATP 1000 tournaments on the men's side. uh, And there's a couple on the women's side as well. But I just find it so exciting. The tennis is great. Um, And of course, Rafael Nadal has sort of, you know, this is like culture, like he wins everything. And of course, this year it's not like that. So it's a little bit different. But still, to me, going to Paris uh, is just the the, the most exciting thing I'm going to do all year. Um, I'm actually celebrating a 40th anniversary. So first of all, congratulations to Murphy and Luke for having won 30 years ago. That's huge. I lost to Yannick Noah in 1983. So they're celebrating like crazy in France uh, because Yannick Noah, of course, the last Frenchman to win a, a Grand Slam singles titles. And Murphy and Luke, I mean, they were one of the first sort of real double specialists where singles wasn't sort of really on the map. I know they both played it um, and uh, and they were doing the high five and the, and the chest pumps. And I mean, they started a lot of the things that then Bob and Mike Bryan, I believe, uh, took over. Um, I wouldn't compare them uh, in terms of level necessarily to, to Mike and Bob, but the attitude was there, the fun and uh, the engagement. And I think they really uh, made doubles very, very special to a lot of people without having great singles players involved. So well done, Murphy and Luke. And, you know, when when you look at what's going on in, in clay court tennis now. I mean, you had your, of course you had your 40 year anniversary celebration of actually winning the thing last year. You'll have another 40 year anniversary of winning it 
in 2025 and yet another in 2028. So there's still a few 40 year celebrations for you to come with. That's awfully nice of you to be there for your buddy, rock star, Yannick Noah. Uh, and I know that you're going to be there to, uh, to do what you need to do to, uh, to support him. But as we look at the tournament now, Matt, and as we look at the field now and, 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 and with Rafa not being in it, how much of, of a loss is that to the tournament? I think it goes without saying that here's your 14-time champion, but has in people's minds and in tennis fans' minds, has the sport started to kind of move past the big three to an extent anyway? I mean, it has, and I think it's kind of started with uh, Roger Federer not playing Wimbledon last year because I think we all were hoping that he was going to come back one more time, uh, and that didn't happen. Of course, of course, we miss uh, Roger Federer tremendously, but but still, I have to say it's pretty incredible how how ten- the tennis world has moved on through new rivalries. Carlos Alcaraz versus Yannick Sinner. That's something uh, that uh, everybody's looking forward to. And so far, their matches have been absolutely incredible. And I I mean, I dare to say that they have been at the same level as any of the matches that Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal have played over the years. But of course, Alcaraz Sinner haven't played in the big finals yet. And that's, I think, is, is uh, the legacy of Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, for that matter. And I am actually surprised at how quickly we move on. The legacy will always be there. The big three, I mean, it's the greatest time in men's professional tennis, I dare to say, ever. And, of course, Novak is hanging on. You talk about how fast it's happened. That being said, it depends on how you look at it. There are a lot of kids out there that are on the tour right now that weren't even born when this whole big three thing started. So it's not like it happened. It was just there and it was gone. I mean, this thing's been around a while. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, I've been so lucky Andy, because I worked for Eurosport um, and covered it since uh, literally since Federer started winning his first major. And I remember like yesterday when Rafa Nadal won his first French open against Mariano Puerta, why? Because I got to hit with Rafa on the Saturday before the men's final. And, really? and that was the first time that I really, really, really appreciated being retired because <laughs> his game on clay was just unbelievable. And Rafa last year hardly loses game games to Rafa in 2005. So the game has evolved. Rafa has evolved. Novak, of course, has evolved. And then comes uh, Carlos Alcaraz. And he's the most complete 20-year-old that I have ever seen, uh, hands down. Uh, and I'm including the big three. So uh, it's still a great and exciting French Open because of the young guys. Now, if you take away Alcaraz and Holger Rune and maybe even Yannick Sinner, then suddenly we're starting to, uh, now it's Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, who's going to beat Novak? Right. But that's not the case anymore. We have those young guns, and that's so refreshing. When we got together last time, Matt's for this show, and Johnny was with us, and we were talking about the great clay court specialists of all time and the great clay court players of all time, one of the things that we did mention about this upcoming French Open was that the dream final, I think for you it was it was it was Rafa versus Novak. For me, it was Alcaraz versus Novak. Is Novak with the clay court results that he has had? most recently still a definitive hands-down part of a dream men's final 
Absolutely, uh, Alcaraz and Novak are. Now, I do believe, though, that uh, Novak is only going to get seeded third, is he? Because Daniil Medvedev, I think, ah. moved into the number two position. And I could be wrong, but, but uh, that's what I understood after him winning Rome. So there is a chance that Alcaraz and Djokovic are on the same half. Uh, so far, that's what I know right now because Daniel Medvedev moved in there. So that's a bit awkward to me. It's a bit weird, but the French Open always follows the ATP ranking to the T. Wimbledon has gone away from it at times, but Wimbledon lately has also followed it. So, yeah, but does it matter to me? Hmm, let's see. Dream final, yes. But at the same time, semifinals, Akaras, Novak Djokovic, I mean, that's unbelievable. And I think I really agree with you, Andy, because this is – the old generation, but he's so modern in the way that he that his game is evolving. Novak Djokovic, because he started to hit, hit the ball harder at the Australian Open than he ever had before. He doesn't seem to have slowed down at all. He's actually looks stronger, bulkier these days. And then you have Carlos Alcaraz. So to me, the matchup is very, very intriguing. The variety of Carlos Alcaraz and the absolute human wall of Novak Djokovic on a clay court – Ooh, it'll be tough to find a match that I would look forward to more than that ever. And that being said, um, Medvedev, who has been, you know, a hardcore specialist for these past several years, being the best hardcore player in the world, got him to number one in the world. Suddenly he wins in Rome. You would know better than anybody. What are the little subtleties and the nuances when you go from clay court tournament to clay court tournament? I know that Madrid is faster. I know that it's, it's higher altitude and the air is thinner. But what's the difference between, you know, Rome and, and Paris as far as the way those 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 games play out on those particular surfaces in those particular cities? Yes. Yeah, so the difference I always thought was that Rome was always slower somehow, even though it's actually I believe Rome is further south uh towards the equator compared to Paris. So it should be warmer in Rome than it becomes in Paris, but somehow uh, maybe because Rome is right on on the on the ocean right there. Maybe that's why there's mm-hmm. more rain. It's heavier. It always seems much slower. And when you look at the way Daniel Medvedev played there, and if you were following it here on the tennis channel, I mean there were so many rain delays. And in fact, I can't. It, it's amazing that they even got the tournament through because of course there's no roof there. But when the courts are slower and they're heavier because of rain, uh, it seemed that Daniel Medvedev. His footing is is more secure. He doesn't slip and slide around uh, involuntary as much there as he does in the French Open. Uh, It's harder, of course, to spin the ball up high or to get topspin at all if the courts are heavier and and the clay is picking up, uh, tennis balls are picking up some of the clay. And then you have Paris where if it's heavy, it's slow too, just like Rome. But then you have these days in Paris where the sun's shining and uh, it's sort of 80 to 85 degrees and the balls are absolutely flying through the air. Uh, and you got to be good at both situations and, of course, the one in between as well. So that being said, Max, what what favored you when you were there? Did you like those hot, sunny days where the ball was flying or did you like it a little bit slower and – you could just run all day. What was it? What, what were better conditions for you to win those three titles? Yes. Yeah, so for me, it was mo- mostly about matchups because obviously I'm not even close to being uh, dominant in any of those years. 
but it was matchup. So if you played, let's say, a Yannick Noah, you were definitely hoping for the slower courts, the colder temperatures, uh, and then he would have to sort of play the same game as he did in that finals in 83, which was coming to the net, hitting a lot of slice back and serving and volleying. And then if the courts are slower, then that would favor me. But then if you play a real clay quarter in those days, who would maybe be Emilio Sanchez or even Ivan Lendl for that matter. Then I like the faster court. So dry and hot. Guillermo Vilas in my first final, same thing. Because suddenly you could spin the ball a little bit more. It kicked up a little bit and you can take it on the rise. Uh, And uh, which one does Rafa like? I guess he likes everything. Exactly. Hot and sunny. (laughs) But then he managed to win that French Open that was held in late September uh, wow. during the first COVID year. He won that even easier than before. So it's about matchups for sure, but you have to be able to deal with both conditions because it is going to happen and you're going to have nightmare opponents depending on the conditions. But uh, the great critical players, they seem to manage uh, both situations. That's for sure. All right, let's go to break. And then when we come back, you're going to hear from Murphy Jensen. Oh, by the way, and we're going to talk to him about that 30th anniversary celebration. Then we'll be back with more Matt Spielander. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com. We're celebrating the French Open, and we're part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. So why would we not? Don't go away. The one and only Murphy Jensen is next. Hey, guys. AZ here with Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And I am joined by Diadem Business Development Manager, Doug Mouch. And Doug, let's face it, pickleball right now is all of the rage. However, it hasn't been exactly a seamless transition of bringing pickleball in with some of the the tennis clubs. And one of the pain points has been the sound of pickleball. And Diadem has really taken the bull by the horns with regard to some new technology that you guys have out that I think all pickleball players, tennis players, or people that have a concern about the sound of pickleball are going to be very excited. Tell us about it. This past November, we launched the Vice Paddle, and we knew it wouldn't be conforming to USAPA rules because it has the EVA foam in it. That EVA foam causes the paddle to have a little more of a trampoline effect, but our theory was it's going to help tennis elbow or pickleball elbow, help wrist issues, it will help people that need a little more power that don't have it. But the biggest factor that we have found that's helped many country clubs and communities is the noise factor. So this EVA foam device paddle, it really does not make any noise whatsoever. It's a very solid noise, more of a tennis racket. So it kind of mutes that plastic wiffle ball noise to almost zero. So it gives you a little more power, in, in some cases a lot more. It's arm-friendly. It's audio friendly. Where can people go online to find out more about Diadem's wide array of pickleball equipment and tennis equipment? Well, our website is diademsports.com. The paddle is the Diadem Vice. Go online, check it out. I'm Andy Zoden. Doug, thank you so much. We appreciate it and good luck with all you guys are doing. Thank you, Andy. Really appreciate your time.
Hey Z here, KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And like everybody else in the sport of tennis across the world, we are all celebrating the 30-year anniversary of the Jensen Brothers win at Roland Garros back in 1993. I'm joined by Murphy Jensen, part of the celebration. Murphy, it's so cool to have you with me. And I got to ask you, you know, you mentioned, I heard in a great interview that you did recently on Tennis Channel, all of them are good, but you talked about how the French Open with Luke was your actually your first tournament victory. And and how did that affect the overall legacy of the Jensen brothers? Just winning that one major, how did that change everything, if at all? Well, personally, I never had to prove myself on the tennis court again. And professionally, I'll never forget sitting in that empty locker room, feeling my feelings. I almost felt like the gods of tennis. It gives me chills. It's an empty locker room. You're you're in a club that's unique in that moment that um, I I now can share with Singles players or doubles players or mixed doubles players, which is really neat. What was the most special of it all was a lifetime of sacrifice from my parents in our family and our tennis community in Michigan. We all did this together. It was a it was a shared effort that um, it didn't matter where you came from what you weren't we weren't from california or florida and we didn't have all the fancy tennis facilities we're from a christmas tree farm in northern michigan that learned to play on a wall and then on our backyard court with with only one side with a fence and we just lived ate slept and breathed tennis for about 13 years and we that's what it all meant um is that uh we did something okay. We did okay. What's really weird is uh, I'm 40 years old. So I was 10 years old. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. How did you do it? <laughs> oh, that's the thing, Murph. You just, that sense of humor is just, is just perpetual. And it has to be, it has to be easy to be able to exude a sense of humor and to have that incredible comfort in your own skin as a result of walking in and amongst all the people, so many that tried to do what you and Luke did and as brothers and all of the different components that, that make that so incredibly special. And, and really you guys were always, you guys were always a show, but if you don't win the French, are you just a sideshow? And by winning it, did that just validate everything? No, no, no. We beat Corda and Edberg. We beat a lot of great players along the way. We're legit, and everybody knows it. And to your point, never having to prove that again. We would have done just fine in this game. You know, we would have been players out there that had a lot of fun. But to sit here... With my French Open trophy. There it is, for those of you that can't see it. I don't have a trophy case like the V-Landers and the Agassiz. <laughs> I got a trophy, one trophy case. I don't know where. Yeah, you can find it on eBay. No. And, 
you know, this this thing called life is uh, fragile, as we discussed the last time we got together, the last few times, and I'm and I'm so grateful to you. Um, surviving cardiac arrest. And then I found myself at a hearing on the Hill speaking to Congress alongside Chuck Schumer and Damar Hamlin. And Damar, I texted today. And I, you know, he's starting training camp and stuff. And, you know, he's got this. And he, and, and my first um, ball I hit prior to hitting that ball, I took a knee and I said, God, don't let me die on this court. <laughs> and, and I'm still here. And I'm still here to talk to you. And I'm not selling a damn thing. I'm just sharing my story of what happened and why I'm still here. And and uh, if, if my story can help one person, we've we've been successful. We, not I, we have been successful. Well, it's called We Connect. And r- right now, we celebrate. We <laughs> celebrate the French Open. We celebrate the Jensen Brothers winning in 1993 and all. I'll, I'll let you go, Murph. One other thing, and I think you pretty much touched on it already, but one of the things that you said in that interview that I, I watched recently on Tennis Channel when they said, well, you know, you were down a few match points in that on the way to that French Open title. Did you realize that? And your response, I believe, as clever as you always are, is, well, you know, I've been down match points my whole life. <laughs> and I think that's part of what you're talking about, and it's just a matter of, looking match point in the face and saying, I got this, isn't it? You know, faith and trust, faith and trust. They asked me, were you worried about the uh, Woodies? And uh, we had to overcome so many close matches in that fortnight that by the time the semis and finals came around, it didn't matter who was on the other side. We were going to um, get the job done. And we were faced three love down in the final set. And no problemo. Let's go to let's go to work. And we, we string off, I think, the next five games. And then 5-4, serving 30 love, double faulting twice, down a break point, second serve. And hit that about six miles an hour and Luke took over as like big brothers are supposed to do. And uh, carried me home. And my brother wanted me to give you a shout out because he, he thinks the world of you and has the utmost, utmost respect for the work you've done and the career you've had, just so you know. And uh, like I, this is becoming my mantra. If nobody's told you they love you today, kick serve radio. I do. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. We love you back, Murphy. And that goes for kickserveradio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network, Tennis Channel, everyone in the sport of tennis. You are the man. We celebrate you and your brother and give my best back to him too. The Jensen Brothers, forever French Open doubles champions and champions in the sport of tennis and in life. We love you guys. Love you too. Thanks, Andy. Sarah Z here with a kick serve quick serve with my friend and nutrition guru Courtney Ward with Body Fuse. Courtney, as we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say, more advanced or more experienced in our life, our fitness levels take a hit if we're not careful, don't they? You know, Sarah, they do, unfortunately. And I highly suggest supporting your activities at every stage. 
pre-workout, intra-workout, and post-workout. So you want to think about a pre-workout. We have a product called Endgame, and that basically will allow you to increase your energy and focus during your workout. And then intra-workout is almost just as critical. So we have branched-chain amino acids called BCAA311, and that's a perfect product to allow your body to almost refuel while you're working out. It's a super hydrator as well as a muscle recovery while you're working out. And then finally, protein is critical post-workout and BodyFuse Lean Protein is one of the highest quality proteins on the market. Very, very effective, a slow, long burn, six to eight hours after ingestion and after that workout. So your energy, you're not, you're not going to crash and your energy continues. You're feeding your muscles and you just feel Great. So with these three elements, pre, intra, and post-workout, you're really going to support yourself at all stages in any activities, in intense workouts, tennis matches, body strength conditionings, uh, sessions, etc. Fantastic. And one more time, Body Fuse. BodyFuseUSA.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with Body Fuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the Kickserve Radio Boys. Welcome back, everybody. Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're kickserveradio.com. And I want to thank Murphy Jensen for just some great time. And again, congratulations to he and Luke Jensen for uh, commemorating and celebrating their 30th anniversary of winning the French Open. Matt, a couple of things that we need to touch on. It seems like every show now we're talking about the loss of, of a big-time tennis personality, tennis player. In this case, it's Owen Davidson. 13-time major champion, the great Aussie. I had some experiences with with Davo, and I'll start with mine, which is one of the great lines that I still use on the court to this day. And we were doing a clinic, a ladies' clinic together down in Houston many years ago, and we were overlooking there was about, oh, three or four courts of kind of 3-0 and 3-5 ladies, and he had them doing some hitting drills. And while we were kind of roaming around together, one of the ladies kind of screamed from about two or three courts down, hey, Owen, when are we going to work on some strategy? And it didn't take much to set Owen off, you know, especially in his later years, Matt. So I'm sure you had some experience with that. And he immediately brought everybody in and he had this look on his face. And I thought, "Uh oh, and he said, I'm sorry, what'd you say last? And she said, when are we going to work on some strategy? And he stood there and he crossed his arms and he said, well, I've been watching you hit for about the last 15 minutes, and I would say that it would be a pretty good strategy to hit the ball a little better. And I've never forgotten that. I've used it any chance I've ever gotten. And having the opportunity to be around Owen um, as witty and charming and crusty at times as he could be, he was always a dear friend and mentor and, uh, and a great Australian champion, and he will be missed. What are some of your memories with him? Yeah, so I've seen Owen. I don't necessarily have a specific memory, but but Owen was, uh, you know, one of these guys that if you knew tennis, you knew who Owen Davidson was, of course, because he's a great doubles player and a great mixed player. And he was traveling the tour, coaching a bunch of players. So I think he brought a lot of, uh, a lot, he was very, very well respected. And he went down and sort of worked with, with the likes of, of you, Andy, and, and beginners or, or what you Thank would you. make <laughs> 
and, and professionals, not you, <laughs> beginner, but, but you know, customers, yeah, students, it. whatever you call them, people that are trying to get better. Right. So I think that he, the legacy is that he just loved the game. Um, and of course, the, he uh, obviously was lucky in many ways because he came up with all the other great Australians. And because of that, maybe we didn't talk about Owen Davidson enough, but we also know that he was a legend and he will be missed. Uh, and those Australians, I mean, they all had such great sense of humor, oh but still amazing people skills. Uh, and they could just sort of make you feel so small. But at the same time, they would listen and they just want to share this, the passion for the sport. So, yeah, Owen, uh, we will miss you dearly. Another subject, and this is we're going outside of tennis here, but I know that this is a subject that you're going to want to touch on because it was the story of the story of the PGA. And it was this Mike Block it was this teaching pro, match who at 46, 47 years of age just went and literally put not just the golf world, but the world in the palm of his hand for a weekend and captured all of our imaginations. And on Sunday, he has a hole in one on 15. Are you joking? And then these up, up uh, rolls in a putt on 17, an unbelievable up and down on 18, and then an interview that brought a tear to your eye after it was all over with. And then people were asking me, you know, well, you're a teaching pro. What would this be the equivalent of? Could this happen? And I'm thinking a 46 or a 47-year-old making it to the round of 16 of a major now. And I'm like, it's not possible. But my question to you is, has there ever been anything in tennis, the likes of which could even compare to that? Well, no, it hasn't. Not with somebody that that unknown. I okay. mean, the the hole in one that Michael Block hit wasn't just a hole in one. It was a slam dunk. The ball didn't <laughs> even bounce on the green. It went straight in the hole. Unreal. Didn't really touch the flag, and it was just stuck in there. And unfortunately, it seemed like Mr. Block didn't see it, and nor did he believe. Rory McIlroy that the ball when Rory said it's in it's a hole in one he's like no 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 it's not Rory is it so the whole thing was just unbelievable I don't think in tennis we 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 obviously haven't had that because the sentimental favorite um you can't be that old but and can you compare it maybe not Jimmy Connors Jimmy Connors at the U.S. Open, when he made the semifinals that year, when he was, I think it was 39 years old. 39, yeah. Yeah, that was unbelievable because he started out with not really having any chance at all. And the only one that that wanted to think he should have played is Jimmy. Because I even know uh, when Jimmy, um, uh, with his agent, I know his agent, uh, and uh, he told me that Jimmy called him and said, hey, I'd like to get a walkout at the U.S. Open. And his agent at the time said, are you out of your mind? Why would you want to do that? He said, just want one more chance, one more chance. And, of course, you get scared. You could, And Jimmy brought that crowd to it's their knees. And, and they had never experienced a tennis player like Jimmy Connors. They've seen him before. But in those days, he wasn't as engaged with the crowd. And I think he took it to the next level. And not only that, he performed at that highest level as well during that U.S. Open. So uh, an unknown, an older player, I don't know. Martina Navratilova won the mixed doubles at the U.S. Open when she was over 50. That may be. But now, Michael Block, what a legendary story that is. Somebody said to me, what about your boy Mats Vlander? 
winning the French at 17. And my response, you know, it's like he was unseated. He was unknown. And I said, not only that, but he was way too naive to even realize what the hell he was doing would be my guess. Whereas this guy block, he gets it. Like he understands exactly who he's out there with and how improbable and how impossible and how there's no way in hell that this should happen. And I mean, his reaction, did you see it match when they said tomorrow you're playing with Rory? He couldn't talk. Yeah. Like that's how, that's how acutely aware the guy was. And I'm just thinking, I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't think of anything in tennis. And usually I'm somebody that can come up with something. And Jimmy Connors, I mean, let's face it, Jimmy Connors, by the time he got to the semis of Wimbledon at age 39, he's a, you know, an eight time major champion or six times or however many he won. I can't even think of the number right off the top of my head. I think, how many did Jimmy win? Six? He won well, five eight, US, US, eight, 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 yeah, exactly. No okay. French. Uh, Jimmy could play on all the different surfaces, that's for sure. But it's not comparable. Um, yeah, I don't know if, if that has really happened in any sport where, I mean, Phil Mickelson won the PGA last year and and, uh, and he was the oldest or is the oldest to, to ever win a Grand Slam uh, or a major in golf. But he's famous. He's won it before. So Michael Block, I mean, that's just... It's incredible. And like you're saying, Andy, the cool thing is that he knew exactly how much better the other players are. And somehow, because it's golf, doesn't matter what it looks like. There are no pictures on your scorecard. He gets the ball in the hole. And the same number of strokes as Rory McIlroy. No, he lost by two to Rory over 72 holes. That's absolutely incredible. Well, and I think the best comment that I heard was somebody said that Kevin Costner was watching the thing going, this is absolutely absurd, and he's the one that starred in 10 Cup. So <laughs> if anybody would go, no, 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 I get it, it would be him. And he, even he was like, this is absurd. The hole-in-one, now that's where you lost me. All right, let's get back to the French before we before we check out this week, Matt, because I know you wanted to talk about the women in particular and Coco Goff and the Americans and Let's talk male, female, singles, double. Who's got the best chance? What American player's got the best chance to really show up and uh, and make some Michael Block-type noise in, in Paris? Well, I think you have to go to the women first, to be honest. Even, the, even though the men have uh, Taylor Fritz and Francis Tiafoe and, and, and so many great Americans that are ranked so high, uh, even J.J. Wolf. The fact that J.J. Wolf has gotten up in the ranking and that he's playing these majors is absolutely brilliant because we interviewed him uh, at the uh, Arizona Tennis Classic a couple of years ago and, and because he seemed like a nice guy. He had a really cool hairstyle. Now, I mean, Andy, <laughs> can you believe it? He's actually in the main draw of all these majors and he's winning matches and he deserves to be there. Uh, and I think he's getting close to top 50. Chris Eubanks. I mean, he's in the main draw of Grand Slam tournaments these days. So these Cinderella stories keep happening and they, they prove the point that they are really good tennis players on any surface. But with Jesse Pegula and Coco Goff, I think they're a step ahead uh, of even Taylor Fritz and Francis Tiafoe in terms of the chance to win the tournament. I can see Pegula win a French Open because of the, the level that she has played at, her calm demeanor, 
her smarts on the tennis court. And, of course, Coco Goff, she has to defend a whole lot of points because she got to the finals last year. And that, at her age, is actually a lot of pressure, not from the outside world, but to yourself. Because if you don't defend and you lose early, you dip in the ranking and suddenly your seed is not as high. So in that sense, it's very important. I believe that Coco Goff is in the perfect place this year because there really is no pressure on her from the outside world to win a slam at this particular moment. Yes, sometime in the future. To me, Jesse Pegula and Coco Goff. And then, of course, who is the most sure to win is Jesse Pegula, Coco Goff in the women's doubles. Now, there is your biggest favorite in American tennis at the French Open. So it, it's uh, it's really cool. I'm a little confused with Taylor Fritz that he hasn't that he hasn't done better on clay. I don't really see why he shouldn't be nearly as good on clay. But then you have to also realize that all these Spanish guys and South American guys they really are no threat on hard courts and grass to someone like Tiafo or Taylor Fritz. But on clay. Oh, my goodness. These guys are so good and, and they move well and have great attitudes. And um, so so it is tough. It's tough on the men's side for sure. But I think one American has a good chance of getting through to the quarters. I really do. Well, I'll just say this. I think Coco Goff is in a little bit of a crisis of confidence, although on the doubles court, she seems to regain some of it. Uh, we'll give a shout out to our good buddy, Philip Farmer, who's coaching Austin Krychek, and he's had a good run winning Monte Carlo with Yvonne Dodig. But I think we'll we'll close out with this because I think it's only fair and only justified because of the fact that he won the French juniors years ago and did semi the Australian Open this year. We at least have to mention Tommy Paul. Absolutely. And maybe he would be the most natural uh, clay quarter of the Americans. And some of it is because he, he might be lacking that bigger shot that Taylor Fritz has with his forehand, that Francis Tiafa has with a forehand. And Tommy Paul is a little more consistent. Um, he, he has shown that he believes in himself. Uh, he can run forever, it seems. And I would think that he goes in and sort of goes, OK, really, I'm not. Uh, in the, the spotlight is not on me here. I know how to make a semi of, of a Grand Slam. I did in Australia, and clay should suit me. So it might become about matchups with Tommy Paul, but even Tommy Paul has been a little bit, uh, it has been a little bit quiet um, around the Americans. But also, we also have to realize that the Americans, they're, they, they're not that keen to go to Europe to play on clay. And then when Wimbledon comes around, suddenly it's all flipped upside down. And now we have some players that, that have a chance to even win the tournament at Wimbledon. But there's always one American that, uh, that surprises us as the French Open on the men's side. And I believe on the women's side, they're going to have great success. Well, one American that will go to Paris and under any circumstances is going to have a great time is our third partner in crime, and that's Johnny Levine. And he will be there. You will be there as well. You're actually going to play in the Legends Tournament, as you often do. And uh, I know that tennis fans around the world always enjoy seeing you on any, any tennis court that they get an opportunity to see you on, let alone that stadium where you had so much success. For the great Mats Wielander, three-time French Open singles champion, I'm Andy Zoden. This is KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Enjoy Roland Garros, and I have to say it, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to go Denver Nuggets. Nuggets.